Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of the Back Pain Podcast. Today we are discussing Corda Equina Syndrome, a condition that many listeners would have heard of, be that from a Facebook group, support groups, or they may have been warned about it by any clinician or practitioner that they are seeing. We have also also mentioned it a couple of times on other shows. But what actually is it? Why is it so important to watch out for these signs and symptoms? And what should you do if you think you have it? So to answer all of these questions and more, I'm joined today by Rob Tyre, physiotherapist and somewhat of a, of a go-to person for all things Corda Aquinas Syndrome, hence why I've, I've invited him to speak speak to us today. Rob, welcome to the show. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thank you for joining us. So let's kick straight off then by asking you, what is Corda Aquinas Syndrome? Um, so there are a few different definitions, and there's some loose agreement between different professional bodies on what constitutes quadriquina syndrome. Um, essentially, it, it's a collection of symptoms, as any syndrome is, and it's usually a collection of syndromes in and around the um, function of your bowel, bladder, skin between your legs, sexual function, and pain in the back or running down the legs to the feet. And essentially, you can have two different um manifestations in that you can have symptoms of quadriquina or you can have radiographic quadriquina which means on an MRI you can have quadriquina compression but in order to have quadriquina syndrome you have to have a combination of the two so you should have symptoms of one of the things I've just mentioned which we can go into some more detail about in conjunction with a, a positive scan positive being compression of the the nerves known as the quadriquina nerves usually from something like a disc but essentially anything that can cause pressure on on those nerves, whether it be um, a bone, whether it could be a tumour, whether it could be what they call a vascular uh, malformation, so like a swelling of an artery. But the the usual culprit is a disc. And I know you've you've talked extensively about the disc with David Polder recently, so I'd I'd defer to his expertise on that. (laughs) So so people so you can have symptoms of it which i know we're going to go over the key symptoms but you could also have it presenting on an, M- on an mri scan but without actually having any symptoms of it at the same time is that is that what you mean yeah so it's it's uh to, to quote tom jones it's not unusual you <laughs> you can have these things that as we get a bit older you can get a bit of swelling around the discs you can have um age-related change around the spine um, you can have some of these abnormalities that manifest without any pain, whether it be cysts or whether it be bony growths. And gradually over time, things can cause con- can, can grow to, to create contact to those nerves, but they may not be of a su- significant threshold whereby the body recognizes it either as a threat or not of a significant threshold whereby it interrupts with the, the transmission of nerve impulses from the nerve to the target destination whether that be the bladder or one yeah. of the other areas so a bit like uh, any other nerve compression that i know we've spoken about before you can have a disc bulge that can irritate a single nerve that's going down the leg but you might see that on mri scan but it might not cause you any pain or any symptoms at that current time yeah definitely so you know we get mris back all the time where we've sent them essentially for somebody who's got right-sided leg pain and they happen to have a correlating feature of nerve compression on the right hand side but just for good measure have a 
a problem on the left-hand side or or a compression on the left-hand side, but it's not actually a problem because it doesn't cause any symptoms. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know we've spoken about the, before. There's a lot of things that can trigger pain and, you know, a disc pressing on a nerve can just be one of them at a particular time. So what are then the key symptoms that, you know, that present, you know, are there more common ones? Are there less common ones? You know, what should people really be looking out for in, with regards to quarter equinus syndrome? So the, the data is as ever growing. So we're, we're learning more and more about things. And unfortunately the way we're learning about these things is from the, the back end of the care. So when people have actually ended up having to have surgery or um, having to have uh, specialist input from a spinal consultant. So you'll find that the majority of the data is very heavily leaning towards the, the surgical specialty units or A&E, and that there's not as much evidence or research gone into the primary care side of things, which is when you turn up to your GP or your physio or your local chiropractic clinic. And essentially, me and a few other people are trying to change that. So we're trying to grow the research about that. The The symptoms are, are very varied and just like a lot of things, there are there are no two presentations that are identical. So you have to have a level of suspicion rather than any clear certainty. And there's a vast majority of people, even those who work in quadriquinic cases day in, day out, who will not get it right when they send for a scan, expecting to see quadriquinic compression, and it's not there because there are a lot of other things that can mimic those symptoms. The, the symptoms that you need to be looking out for really, and will explain, hopefully expand on them as the conversation ensues, are any any changes, and, and I'm using the terminology from the guidelines, and, and it is as loose as this, any changes to the function of your bladder. Now, that can be explained by a lot of other things, but essentially, is this bladder presentation different or unusual for you? So have you noticed any changes to the frequency of going to the toilet? That can't be explained by fluid intake. So you're not drinking five more cups of coffee because you're on furlough. Um, and you happen to be going to the toilet more frequently. Um, difficulty finishing. So if you feel like you've, you've gone to the toilet and you finished and you get back up, you think, actually, I need to go back again. Or you notice that there's a like a loss of power when you're trying to avoid your bladder. So then if, if, you, if you're having a way, the, the noise isn't as loud, for want of a better phrase, when it hits the water, um, or you feel like you can't, you can't fully push. And again, people may be familiar with these symptoms from, from prostate problems or pelvic floor issues. Um, but essentially, it's if this comes in conjunction with back pain. It's not impossible to have quadriquinous syndrome without back pain, but that is probably one of the rarer of the rare presentations. Bowel function, it would be the same thing. So people will sometimes ask you about have you changed, have you noticed any change in your bowel function? Um, and the go-to response to that is, oh, well, I'm a bit constipated, and that might be the case because you've taken codeine, for example, which is known to constipate you. But the key thing to get across is. Can you push? Can you squeeze those muscles? Can you bear down? And if you cannot do that, then that's different from constipation. So constipation is you, you can push, you can push really hard, but nothing's coming out. It's quite the opposite in this case. Or equally, you can't stop it from coming out. The same with your bladder. So you're having episodes of incontinence, which is unusual for you. Um, and I think the final one, which is probably the most important to mention about the bladder, is that you're desperate for a wee, but nothing's coming out. So that you see how there's quite a lot of different manifestations within has there been any changes to your bowel or bladder. And it's quite difficult for you as an individual when you're in rage and pain to sort of discern what's accurate, which is why it's really important to talk about this with somebody. So some of the more telling features um, are if there's any numbness between your legs. 
So if you have to wipe your bum or wipe your front or wash in between your legs, for example, if you're in the shower or you're sat in the bath, can you tell that the temperature is the same on that part of your body as it is elsewhere? Um, there are some more personal manifestations of that. So erectile difficulties, inability to ejaculate or loss of sensation or altered sensation during penetrative sex or inability to reach climax. These are some of the more personal questions that your, your frontline clinician should be asking you. Um, and hopefully they, they sort of line them up without diving straight into them with a little bit of background as to why they're asking. And one of the more recent sort of additions to the quadriquina guidelines are the, the, the pain running down the back of, of both legs at the same time, in keeping with what might be low, known as sciatica in most circles. So I think I covered everything there, bladder, bowel, saddle, sexual function. Bilateral side. Yeah, that's it. And I'm really glad you kind of touched on those, those those topics because, you know, obviously they're very personal questions. And I'm sure there are some people out there who may have been asked these questions from a, whoever the healthcare professional was, and they may not have understood why they are asking about, say, sexual dysfunction or, or whatever, you know, even bladder and bowel habits, you know, can if you're one minute talking about, you know, do you have any tingling in your toes towards, you know, going into, you know, can you wee properly, it can be a bit of a jump. So it should, uh, should have been set up quite correctly. And Often, you know, even asking those questions is enough to trigger a, a thought in a lot of patients, which they may not have thought about before. And I've had a, a handful of, a couple of quadriquina cases. And my first ever one, I asked about sexual dysfunction, but the guy at the time didn't feel it was appropriate to say anything. But it's not until I, I warned him about quadriquina and all this stuff, and he said it was fine. He then went home and then rang me back and said, oh, actually, I have had some of those symptoms. And, you know, so asking those questions is important. And it's, you know, relaying that information to your healthcare professional is is really really important so those are the they said the, the the key ones you know those the bowel bladder sexual function saddle numbness that numbness around the saddle saddle area and then and is that because whatever's compressing those the, those nerves those that quarter equina area do that those nerves then go to the bowel and bladder in that area so if there's compression of that area you know that that's what that's what's being compressed is that the reason yeah so so my my rudimentary understanding as a, a non-spinal neurosurgeon is that <laughs> The, the path from the spine to the, the end point being the bladder is connected by a nerve. Um, and if the nerve is compressed anywhere along that chain, it can cause a problem with the bladder function. If it if that part of the chain just so happens to be the quarter equina nerve root, then that's a big problem with a with a time sensitive, um, time sensitive nature. Not just the bladder, of course, you know, all of the other things yeah. you've just mentioned. But just just sort of to clarify the saddle, um, because it was a good study for those that are interested on Sometimes we miss quarter equina because people we're talking to don't know what we're, what we're on about when we say things like saddle. So, you know, when, when your healthcare practitioner says saddle, hopefully they'll expand on that. But essentially it's whatever part of your body would normally touch a saddle if you were riding the horse or riding the bike. So in between your legs, your genitals, and even your bum cheeks. So that would constitute a saddle. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good good to clarify. So then you just touched on quite. A, we can segue quite nicely then on that. You touched on the the time sensitive nature of of this. Why is it so important that this is you know kind of investigated early, and why do we warn so many patients about this? We don't, you know we don't warn them about you know anywhere near as other problems that are you know that aren't as serious as this. So why is this so important and and important and time sensitive so the time sensitivity comes from the ability to reverse those changes so um i'm often overheard saying to people that this is not a life-threatening condition but it's a quality of life-threatening condition so if we if we delay the input from the appropriate clinician i.e the surgeon um anything on the research 
suggests anything over 48 hours, then the likelihood of recovering the function of whatever it is that's become dysfunctional slips away further and further. So if you are incontinent of urine or, or have bladder retention and we don't act on it in an appropriate time scale, then the likelihood is that's the way it's going to be forever, which for, for some people is, is a big deal. And for most people, I'd suggest is a big deal. For others, they maybe won't consider it as big a deal because they already have other problems alongside that. But you know, we, we, don't, we don't base this on age because quadraquina, although it has a slight tendency towards the younger population when it comes to acute disc swelling, compressing the quadraquina and a slight tendency towards the older population when it comes to age-related changes. It, it, it affects people in the same way and we don't want to discriminate against people because of age. Just because someone's 20 and they've lost their sexual function or bladder function is no less important than someone in their 60s. No, I, I, I totally agree. We shouldn't uh, shouldn't judge people on age and, and direct clinical care based on based on someone's age, really. No, so yeah, so it's the risk of that permanent change to to any of those any of the any of those areas, I guess. That and it's not an area which you know it can make life very very challenging if you do have a permanent permanent problem with those with those areas. So, how common is it? You know, is this you know we speak about this being very rare. Is this a one in ten, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in a million? Where are we on that kind of spectrum of back pain sufferers? Depends on where you are in the pathway of care. So if you're in a spinal specialist unit, the likelihood is there's a high chance of it being quadraquina. If you're coming into your GP surgery with back pain, then it's a very, very, very low chance of it being quadraquina syndrome. The statistics that are touted are about 0.08%. So less than 1% of people with back pain have quadraquina syndrome. More than that will have quadraquina compression. But remember, we're talking about it has to be the symptoms alongside that. So just because you have it on a scan doesn't mean you need surgery. And in fact, actually, it's dissuade, people are dissuaded from doing what they call prophylactic surgery, where you operate on a person who doesn't have quadraquina syndrome, but has quadraquina compression. It's more of a watch and wait and, and monitor these things. Um, so the statistics, I think, go back to a paper maybe almost 20 years ago, and I think it just gets reused and reused in subsequent papers from a primary care perspective. So again, referring back to some of the other work that I and a few other people are involved in, we're looking at giving a little bit more of a contemporary representation of quadraquina syndrome in the community, but it's still not a large number. It's very, very rare. That, that, and that should be fairly confident, inspiring in a lot of people that have back pain. Because I know this is something which, it sounds scary. If you, know, if you're, if you sat down with a patient who's coming with acute sciatica and you warn them, about about you know to watch out for these possibilities you know it can sound very scary and you know numbers don't really mean anything kind of when you're when you're sat there and you've been told this information but to hear that you know you're looking at the 0.08 you know, that's one in you know however many hundred thousand you know or ten thousand it's it's very low which is which is good but still important and it's very low even in the presence of those people with symptoms that would be considered features of quadraquina syndrome so just because you have back pain with a change in your bladder function doesn't mean you have quadraquina syndrome. There's a, there's a lot of other reasonable explanations, medication change, muscle spasming, um, pain. You know, there's, there's lots and lots of different reasons. Yeah. That's a really interesting point actually. Yeah. Cause a lot of people, someone listening to this might, you know, have some of those symptoms and they might be overly concerned about it, but you know, as in my experience and your experience, I'm sure you've referred a lot of people for imaging and I have as well, which, you know, we're always overcautious when it comes to this as we should be. But then, you know, it comes back with nothing, you know, and, you know, which is always really nice to, 
nice to see from our perspective the patient might be a bit annoyed because they've sat in a and e for five hours but you know but it's you'd rather take that risk than miss out on it and this is this is the reason really yeah i think we we shouldn't be we shouldn't be overly defensive here but equally this is a really important condition and i've said it before i'll say it again you know it's not something i do as a routine but i'd rather be the mug that gets it wrong by sending you to a and e than the mug who gets it wrong by not sending you to a and e that's the top bottom of it um it's not that i think everybody yeah not everybody needs to go to a and e but if i'm concerned and you're concerned and i can't exclude it then then we we have to go yeah if that's obviously within the time scales of when when the symptoms are presented yeah Yeah. so that that then brings on to the next bit so if you know i've told someone about these symptoms and then they think actually i have you know notice a difficulty in going to the toilet or can't pass urine or i've had some incontinence or any of the other things you mentioned what should they do about it it's a good it's a good question and I'd like to say it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> you can you can say that. Of course, yeah. I mean, because the worst thing I could do here is is you know get this broadcasted out to a wide listenership and over overrun a lot of A and E departments. On this. We can so, caveat. Yeah, yeah. So the ca- the caveat would be um, if it's unusual. If it's unusual, I mean, the first port of call is that you need to speak to a medic. And I wouldn't say that those people who have got absolute barn door features where it's gone from having a normal bladder function normal bowel function, no sensation lost between the legs to absolutely rapid deterioration. You're in agony, you can't move, you go to a There's very little question about that. But those where there's a bit of nuance, you really need to speak to somebody and you need to speak to someone that day. You can't get through to your GP, 111, your local physio service might have a self-referral system, your local private practice of chiros, osteos, physios, hopefully you've got a vetted system in your area whereby you know you can trust that person. You need to speak to somebody who can help you can't put context around your symptoms that will be my first my first point and if you can't then then you chalk it up to i I need to roll the dice and i need to go to any but hopefully that should be few and far between because you should be able to make contact with your local healthcare providers yeah and i should should stress as well at this point that all all healthcare providers you know chiros osteos physios you know will all have this ingrained in their training from day one to looking out for these symptoms so they will be experienced most people will have come across read about studied you know very similar cases so they're aware of this so it's not something abnormal that you think this person may have never heard of this is a very commonly educated and explained topic that, that people will all, all be aware of and they should have pathways in place or you know know what the next protocol is for that whether that's imaging whether it's any whether it's gp whatever it might be they should have those those pathways in place so if a uh, you know patient you, they've gone to a and e and they this is suspected what what's kind of the next step? Will they always have imaging? Are there tests that are done at A&E that can help confirm this? You know, what kind of is the next port of call? Yeah. So if I, if I send somebody to A&E, then, you know, I'm, I'm going to put, I'm going to put it in the context as to what, what they're likely going to do. Yeah. So essentially you're going to be spoken to by another clinician. You're going to have your history taken again to make sure that they're happy with that. An examination would be performed. That would normally include a neurological examination. Neural with an N, not with a U. So they'll be checking your reflexes, they'll be checking your power, your skin sensation. Then there'll be some more intimate examinations, which most physios, I assume most chiros and most osteos probably wouldn't be doing in in their clinic. And that would be an an examination between your legs where they'd be checking the sensation um, in and around your back passage, the power of your, your back passage, sensation around your genitals. Although the recommendations are changing with regards to that, I think currently as it stands nationally, I don't think that would be common practice outside of a GP or an A&E presentation. 
They may do something called a bladder scan, which is an ultrasound scan. And that's one of those things that pregnant women have on their bellies where they, they put gel on and they, they put a probe on, on top of your skin and send sound waves. And then that gets bounced back and the computer reads it. And basically what they're looking for is how much, how much water do you have in your bladder? They might ask you then to go for a wee if you can, and then they'll do it again. And what they're looking for is, are you retaining urine or are you, are you voiding your bladder? That might be the threshold that your A&E department uses in order to refer you for an emergency MRI scan that night. So I don't send people to A&E for an MRI scan. I send them for an opinion. And if that opinion is that they need an MRI scan, then it should be done that night, if not the next day. Um, that is a decision that needs to be made within the hospital and with what, whatever pathways exist. Um, we would normally in our organisation put in place safeguards so that if I've sent you to A&E, someone needs to ring you the next day to figure out whether the steps that have been taken were appropriate. And if not, then we need to put something in place for you there and then. So there should be that fallback mechanism. So, so in summary, another history, an examination, part of that would be an intimate examination. Some of it might use technology like a scan. Brilliant. And then worst case scenario, this patient has confirmed cord requina. They might have had any of those symptoms and bowel and bladder changes. You know, is that always a surgical case? Is it a watch and wait? Is it something that, you know, you can help with? You know, what, what's the, the, the most common, I guess, treatment? So most commonly you'd be offered surgery. I would say if you've got a, a bond or case of cord requina syndrome, you would be offered surgery usually. And there'd have to be a good reason not to. So surgical risk, for example, or you just don't want surgery and you understand the risks and benefits of long-term nerve compression and you'd rather that than the risk of undergoing surgery and the risk of undergoing any surgery, whether it be for your ingrown toenail or whether it be spinal surgery, is that it can get infection, it can go wrong and that it doesn't work. When it comes to spinal surgery, there's a high higher risk than an ingrown toenail surgery of things like <laughs> nerve nerve injury. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, those stats are low. You know, these these people that operate on spines day in, day out are very, very good at what they do for a living. And they've got great equipment that they didn't have a few decades ago. There's a statistic that's touted about that. It's a 50-50 chance as to whether you'll end up in a wheelchair. That is absolute nonsense. Um, you know, these people, these people are very good and they wouldn't operate on you if they felt like it was a high risk of causing you more harm than help. The other option is if you and the surgeon agree together that this is something that you're just going to watch for the next few days and see how it goes next few weeks, next few months, and just monitor the symptoms. And it may be that um, the disc reabsorbs or shrinks or whatever it is that's pressing on the nerve moves off the nerve. That may be an option, but they're less likely in bond or cases of cord requina. It's normally surgery because of the time sensitivity. Um, yes. And, and so pretty much it would, it would be that in terms of treatment, um, nobody can do anything to you non-surgically that's going to take the pressure off the nerve. So, so we can't put things back in. We can't, we can't sort of stretch them out. We, you know, it's, it's a case of if the body's going to reabsorb that disc, it will do it in its own good time. We can help provide care on how, how to support you through that journey, but nobody can do it for you. Can't speed up biology. That's that, 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 that's good to hear. Actually, that's good. So, and so that surgery is just taking away that pressure. You know, surgery is the only thing that can take away whatever's pressing on 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 that on that bundle of nerves. You know, that horse's tail of nerves they call it. You know, whether that's the disc or one of the other things you spoke about, and that's the physically removing it is the only thing to do. Okay. So press, you know, press on press on your hand. The, the pink skin turns white. You let go of that, turns pink again. 
So essentially, you're removing the thing that's obstructing the flow of your of your of your circulation or the or the the signals from the nerve. That that's what's happening here. If you leave that pressure on there long enough, then 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 not good things will happen. Bad things bad bad things happen. And are, are you aware of the the prognosis? You know, if this is caught early um, and and treated, has it got a good outcome um, for people going back to full function? It, it's hard to say. Within forty eight yeah. hours, then the outcomes are likely good. Um, so things like sensation check between your legs or, or sort of rectal tone on a, on a uh, physical examination are what we call more prognostic than diagnostic. So they don't by themselves diagnose quadriquina syndrome because you need an MRI in conjunction with that to confirm it. But it can give you a prognosis as to your likely outcome. So the worse the loss of sensation between your legs and the worse the power loss between your legs, then the, the poorer the outcome, but it doesn't mean that the outcome will be poor. It just means the poorer the outcome if, than if you didn't have that. Possibly, yeah. Um, yeah, the the recovery of things follow, immediately following surgery gives you a good prognosis as to how likely you are to make a recovery. Generally speaking, I've heard you know two millimeters per day is the recovery rate of a nerve because of circulation. Um, I maybe need to fact check that, but that's certainly the numbers I've heard thrown around 18 months can be the duration for nerves to recover generally. So, you know, whatever you've got at about 18 months, then that's probably what you're going to be left with. But within that time, you are healing and recovering. I, I just think in order to have the best possible outcome, you need to be put in front of that person who can do something about it within a timely yeah. manner. Good. That, that, you know, that, that I think that's a, a good note to finish on that is just that, you know, going over that. Yeah. It, how can I how can I phrase it? You know, emphasizing that you know that speed is is important, and this is why we're dedicating a whole episode just to this because it because it's so important. So to kind of top us off, um, can you just go over again those symptoms? I think it would be remiss just not to recap those key symptoms to look out for. Well, why don't I ask you? Why don't you be my my um, my pretendy patient? Yeah, of course. Yeah. What I would say to you is, I'd start by you telling me what the problem is. Once you'd had a chance to get everything off your chest, I'd say to you, Rob, I've got some questions for you that are very personal in nature. But the reason I'm going to ask you these questions is because they tell me a bit about the function of certain nerves in your body. These nerves live in your back and they turn the sensation, the function of everything on from your belly button down to your toes. My job is to try and find out whether those nerves are doing their job. So I'll be asking about the function of your bladder, your bowel, the ability for you to feel between your legs, sexual function or any pain running down the backs of your legs. Is that okay with you? Yes, it is. Wonderful. I've never had anyone say no. So I don't know what I'd do if you'd <laughs> yeah. say no. Yeah. <laughs> so um, since your back pain started, and that's key, so since this all started, has there been any notice- noticeable change in your ability to have a wee? So what I mean by no. that is, does it come out when you want it to come out? And does it stay in when you want it to stay in? No. Okay. Then I might digress a little bit, Rob, and say, have you noticed any noticeable change in how often you're going or how easy it is to make it come out? Nope. And if you had done and you said, yes, I have actually, then I would delve a bit deeper into, well, when did that start? What's the timeline of events? Did it start prior to the back pain? Has it been a long-term issue? Have you had lots of urinary tract infections, medication change, all the other stuff that can affect this? Brilliant. Glad to hear that, Rob. Same question for your bowel. Have you noticed any difficulty in your ability to have a poo or any difficulty in keeping that in? Nope. Okay. The sorts of things I'm talking about are not constipation. They're a loss of your ability to push or squeeze the muscles around your back passage. Um, or equally, have you noticed it's coming out and you didn't even know you needed it, needed to go to the toilet? No. Nope. Then I would say, that's great. You know, and if you had said yes, well, then 
Have you had a long-term issue with constipation? Um, any sort of trauma around that area? Have you had any pregnancies which led to any tearing? Other things that can cause these, these, area, these issues in these areas. So the next ones are really, really personal. I apologize in advance, Rob, but they've got to be asked because it's a really important bit of information. So the next question is about, have you noticed any changes in your ability to get an erection, maintain an erection or ejaculate? Nope. And if you're a lady, um, I might say, have you noticed any difficulty? I mean, I say this to gentlemen as well, because, you know, the penetrative sex is not unique to ladies. So have you noticed any loss of sensation during penetrative sex or ability to reach climax, which is a nice broad way to sort of cover yeah. all sexual bases? No, I haven't. Again, if you had, I'd say, is this new? Has this been something about treatment for? Do you take medication for it? Have you had any input from um, sexual health, urogyne, all the specialties that look after that area? When you wipe your bum or when you wash your genitals or when you wash the skin between your legs, have you noticed any changes in your ability to feel the skin? No, I haven't. So when you touch it, you know that you're touching that skin. When you sit in the bath, you know that the temperature of the water is the same between your legs as it is elsewhere. Yeah. So you see what I've done there? is I'm asking the question and I'm just reinforcing by giving examples of how you might yeah. know that something's changed. Mm. The final question will be about the sciatica. So have you noticed any pain running down from your bum to your feet in both legs at the same time, electric shock type, uh, type pain in nature? No, I haven't. That's really good news. So the things that you're telling me tell me that the nerves are working, they're doing the job, all the messages are being sent and they're being received loud and clear. What I would say to you, though, Rob, is that if anything were to change, so for example, anything that I've just listed on these symptoms, on those questions, and I'd give you a leaflet, then basically what you should do is seek emergency care through your local A&E department. It just needs to be one of those symptoms, not all of them. But the good news is it's as likely to happen to me as it is to you, and I don't have back pain. That's really reassuring. Thank you. No, that's perfect. That's a really good example, and hopefully that's a, you know, helped clear things up for people who may have been asked some questions kind of along that that fringe but not quite delve that deep so giving them an idea of what they can look out for and what they can pay attention to just in case the very rare scenarios happen i guess yeah i would just say you know you're there in a in a professional environment you know so just i know it's easy to say but try try not to sort of be embarrassed about the symptoms because we do see people third and fourth visit and then they start to divulge that information because i think do you know what this is the fourth time i've been asked this this must be really important and by that time it might be too late to sort of act on the symptoms so you know they're asking you for a good reason yeah no that's a, a good topic to end on so thank you very much for explaining that rob you know it's a, it's a a fascinating area but also a very important area that people need to need to understand the the potentially dire consequences if it if it's not picked up on so thank you for for going a deep dive into into quarter equine with us before we finish is there anything else that you want to add do you think that we forgot about or missed off in in terms of the uh quarter equina? so so there are some very good resources out there that are sort of patient facing for want of a better phrase so non-medical facing um there's, there's some information out on youtube there's uh the, the sort of uh macp leaflets that a few well, a few well-known people in the, the sphere of quadruquina put out there, and um, this may be more from a clinician's perspective, but there are there are sort of copies of those leaflets freely available to use in multiple languages as well. So if you're concerned someone's going to another country, then you can provide them with the leaflet of the language of that country or the language that they maybe speak as a primary language, because there's some things that can be lost in translation. Um, 
there, there are some other services out there for if you do get examined and it's not quadriquina, but you do still have those symptoms. People call pelvic health physios exist. It used to be called women's health physios, but men have pelvises too. So it's a case of maybe seeing if your GP can refer you to those services because if it's not quadriquina, great, but you've still got the problem. So what do you do? No, no, that's very good. And what we'll do is we'll link to the MACP um, stuff underneath, which we have done before with the previous episode with um, uh, with Laura Finnegan. We spoke about the serious nature of back pain, so we linked to them, them previously before. So it's a really, really good resources there. So thank you ever so much for joining us. Where can people find you? Are you a social media person or are you a quiet, um, you know, stay away from social media person? I'm a lurker. I'm a lurker. I don't You're work lurker. privately anymore. So this, so my, my platforms aren't necessarily patient face anymore. I don't provide information out there that's digestible <laughs> to patients. I mainly just go online and write bad dad jokes. Yeah, classic. And photos of running, I think, last time I uh, last last time I last time I saw you. <laughs> well, you very few running episodes since the last time I listened to your podcast and I fell over. <laughs> yeah, always good. <laughs> that that did make me laugh a lot. But uh but thank you so much for joining us and thank you for thank you for uh, giving up part of your evening to uh to, to chat to us about uh, work related stuff after work. So thank you. No problem. Thanks, mate. Brilliant. We've been the Back Pain Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Catch you on the next one. Over and out.